Hello and welcome aboard this island nation, the Maritime Programme. Tom McSweeney here with the programme about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. On this edition, what's it like to lead a lifeboat crew on a rescue mission? Every time I get into the lifeboat and I'm sitting in the home seat and my crew are behind me, you're constantly anticipating any problem that might arise. You're monitoring the crew, monitoring the water, the performance of the boat. And it's just constantly on high alert. Eleanor Hooker, Helm of Loch Dargor and Ally, describes the pressures on lifeboat crews and why Ireland should have a whale stranding response system, which wouldn't cost a lot of money. The Irish Whale and Dolphin Group says this would help to explain why strandings happen. The recent sighting and subsequent death of a fin whale in Dublin port attracted great attention. Certainly it's very unusual for the second largest animal on the planet to swim into the centre of our capital city. This Island Nation is Ireland's maritime radio programme, coming to you from the studios of CRY 104FM in Yole on the East Cork coastline, and bringing together through the community radio network the maritime community around Ireland, with news, opinion, comment and discussion for an island people joined and bounded by the sea around us. We often hear on radio and television and read in the newspapers about the rescues carried out by RNLI lifeboat crews all around the coast. But we rarely hear from the crews themselves about what it's like to be involved in a rescue, to be called out suddenly at any time of day or night, to go to the rescue of people who are in danger, in trouble. Eleanor Hooker is Helm of the Loch Derg Lifeboat. She's been given the RNLI Excellence in Volunteering Award in recognition of her outstanding contribution as a volunteer. After many years as the Loch Derg Station's press officer, she now leads the crew on rescue missions. For this island nation, she describes just what it's like to go out on a shout as the RNLI call a rescue. Eleanor is also an author and poet and has written a poem describing a rescue on the loch and in Land Sea. We'll bring it to you after this interview in which she told Justin Marr about being a lifeboat helm. Every time I get into the lifeboat and I'm sitting in the helm seat and my crew are behind me, you're constantly anticipating any problem that might arise. You're monitoring the crew, monitoring the water, the performance of the boat. And it's just constantly on high alert. And when you're writing poetry, that's also required of you to be cognizant of everything around you, to the bird song that people are not noticing or the interactions between people. And uh, certainly on the lifeboat, um, we have calm water when we leave the Versa dock. And then when we're heading out into open water, you look port and starboard and then you're out, you know, you're on. Um, you have that brief moment while you travel the length of the cusp once you leave your berth and then when you head into open water everybody's on full alert it's 360 look out the whole time and it's very hard to write an experience like going out on a shout for people to understand and when I wrote this poem 
I had it workshopped with one of my mentors. He's a poet in Scotland. And I had all sort of metaphysical and magical thinking in the poem. And he said, you know something? I've never been on a lifeboat before. Get rid of all of that stuff. Just take us with you. Let us have an over-the-shoulder view of what you're seeing and what you're doing. And people who know Loch Derg know where the water heats up. They know that down at Parker's Point is particularly treacherous. The lake bifurcates there, and so you get a boxing sea where the waves are coming at you on the bow, on the stern, side on, and it's very confusing. So people who read the poem will recognize that when they see it. And the middle ground is an area as you go up to Scarf Bay, and it's literally just a shelf. And if people misread their chart, they can go straight up onto that shelf. And when the wind is up, it can be a fairly treacherous stretch of water. Beautiful when it's calm, but when the lake is in a mood, she can be in quite a ferocious mood. And so as a poet in my daily life, I'm constantly observing. And when you're out in the boat, there's a different sort of vigilance, but you're constantly monitoring what's going on around you. You know, you can't afford not to. The sea has a strong recurring theme in your work. Where did that love of the sea come from? Because you're based in Tipperary and there isn't too much sea around there. It's the most landlocked county in Ireland. And then um, when I was a child, my father used to bring us to Spanish Point. I mean, we'd get up at the crack of dawn, he'd pack the car, pack us all into the car. And then suddenly the journey went from three or four hours in the car to one hour to Drummondier. He told us we were still going to Spanish Point, but he said, as I get older, um, the world shrinks. And so before I couldn't see America, but now I could see America from the beach. In fact, what I was seeing was County Clare and we're on Loch Derg. And it is the most landlocked county in Ireland, but that stretch of water is considered an inland sea. And well, I, I, everybody lays claim to Tom Crean, but Dad said that Tom Crean was my grandmother's cousin. He also said he was my grandfather's cousin, but we decided never to talk about that. But, um, I wondered why I had the sea in, in all my poems. And he said, well, you know, your Kerry clan all live by the sea and fished in the sea and it was part of their lives. So he said, I'll maybe have a bit of salt water and fish in my blood. <laughs> You've recently been recognised for your volunteer work with the RNLI. How did you get involved with the organisation? Well, people were losing their lives in the lake every year. And Charles Stanley Smith and Teddy Knight, the people who went to the RNLI and said, could we have a recognised, declared resource on Lochter to rescue people? Because we had a thing called Lake Watch, where people rang house to house to say, it's running in your stretch of water, in your stretch of water. And it wasn't really adequate. And oftentimes it was recovery rather than rescue. And so the Ornelai came to Drummondier in 2012-13 and they just put out a call, anybody interested in joining, come and meet us in the hotel in Drummondier. And I pitched up and my experience to then had been at the back of the fleet sailing because I'm not a very good sailor, but I love the crack at the back and also putting around the lake on a five horsepower engine. So I, I pitched up and, and volunteered. Basically, it was um, my desire to give back, to be trained by one of the best services in the world for search and rescue and to be part of something that was making a difference. When you're out there and it's freezing cold, there's sleet and snow, you can just see the bow of the boat in poor visibility. You're not thinking about awards, you're thinking about we're going to find these people and we're going to take them home. That's the priority. The shout. The wind is inconsolable. Crouching to vent my dry suit, I hear gravel scatter. Greeting calls as my fellow crew rush to change for the shout. What's out there? They ask. I tell them what I know. 
It's seven and gusting, our launching authority says. It'll be rough by Parker's. This we already know. One, two whacks on my back tell me crew are seated, feet in stirrups. With an all-clear port and starboard, I open the throttle, launch into the maelstrom. The water is bruised purple and black. Our ballast tank full equals the weight of three men in the bow. Keeps our nose down as we face the tumult of this inland sea. On our port side, a conspiracy of cormorants huddle on Salmon Island's rocky crop, keeping watch. In open waters, the waves heap up, retching, dumping turf-stained lake across our bow. I power up the face, then throttle off so we don't take flight at the crest, pendulum to a bow over a stern capsize. By Hare Island, a turn to port in a beam sea makes us wary of rogue waves, quarter side on. I hold a reserve on the helm to power us away from harm if needed and for safety, steer in at 45 degrees. At Parker's Point with a boxing sea and permit waves, we read all movement, call it as I steer behind, in front and away from breakers. In my earpiece, our radio operator, seated behind me, transmits our location every 15 to Valencia. We see them ahead below the middle ground, side on to weather and sliding down the shoulder of a breaking wave. But with nothing beneath them, their anchor drags before their makeshift drogue snaps them too, bow to weather. I ease us in from windward. A crew climbs across carrying a radio, a smile, first aid. Eight on board, all below except the skipper, luminescent in his orange life jacket. My crew shouts to those below, reassures them. After a quick survey of frightened faces, he gets two, sets up a bridle before he and the skipper haul in anchor and rogue. I helm into wind to cross the T and pass the toe. Count sets as crew pay out line until I call, secure the toe. Making way, we radio back, centre your rudder. With an eye to the swell, the wind and boat astern, we plough a trough, ease back as the line groans. Then into weather we point west through Scarf Bay, steering clear of the middle ground. In the lee of Bushy Island, we shorten the tow, safe harbour in sight at last. Eleanor Hooker, helm of Loch Dark Lifeboat and what it's like to be out on a shout. There have been 11 strandings of whales and dolphins so far this month on the Irish coastline. They happened in Louth, Dublin, Waterford, Cork, Kerry, Clare, Galway and Sligo. A nationally coordinated response system to deal with these strandings is needed, according to the Chief Executive of the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group, Simon Barrow. The recent sighting and subsequent death of a fin whale in Dublin port attracted great attention. Certainly, it's very unusual for the second largest animal on the planet to swim into the centre of our capital city. Fin whales are quite abundant in inshore Irish waters in the autumn and winter, but mainly occur off the south and southeast coasts. 
Although they may have been consistently recorded in the Irish Sea, to swim into Dublin Harbour suggests that this whale was sick, disorientated and likely to be compromised. There was criticism that after it was found dead in Dublin Port, it was immediately towed out to sea before any post-mortem examination could be carried out. Two days later, it washed back up on Dollymount Strand. It is logistically very difficult to carry out an autopsy on such a large animal and establish its cause of death. But we could have taken samples and learnt more about the ecology of these magnificent whales in Irish waters. It is likely the whale was hit by a ship while alive, and while it was likely to have died anyway, it was a sad end. Coincidentally, three days later, a humpback whale observed alive in the Thames near London was also found dead, and it was established through post-mortem examination that ship collision was the actual cause of death of this whale. The Irish Whale and Dolphin Group have requested that relevant government agencies and departments join forces with NGOs such as the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group to develop a large whale stranding response protocol. Species such as humpback and fin whales are increasing in inshore Irish waters, so this issue is only likely to grow in importance in coming years. The IWDG have already developed policy documents outlining the issues and best practice responses for all cetacean welfare issues, including live strandings. Similar protocols have been developed in the Netherlands, where the Coast Guard, local authorities, veterinary pathologists and a national whale strandings team all have their specific roles and work together to ensure that dead whales are removed from the public places in an efficient way, while not missing out on the opportunity to collect as much information as possible about the cause of death and whale biology. In Northern Ireland, the State Conservations Agency recently drafted a protocol involving all relevant agencies, NGOs, vets and landowners. This protocol provided clarity on the roles and responsibilities in relation to managing live or dead strandings in Northern Ireland. A large whale stranding response would not require large financial resources. What we are looking for is an agreed protocol signed by key partners to provide assistance and resources that are already available. This might be a JCB or track vehicle from local authorities, boats from the Coast Guard or RNLI, access to vets from the regional vet labs and or ballistic experts from the Department of Defence. Most of these groups are willing to help and have provided great assistance in the past, but the response is ad hoc, reliant on scrambling to make phone calls and the goodwill of key people. When a large whale strands, a response must be rapid and having protocols agreed and signed off before it occurs will assist in a proper response. We might not fully understand why the stranding event occurred, but we can learn more about the animals and not waste the opportunities these strandings provide. This is Dr Simon Barrow of the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group for This Island Nation. Now a roundup of maritime news from home and overseas with Justin Marr. The biggest change in how ships are powered since they switched from burning coal to oil over a century ago is to be implemented from January. The United Nations Agency for the Sea, the International Maritime Organization, will introduce global rules forcing ships to use cleaner fuels with lower sulfur content to reduce air pollution. However, vessels will still be allowed to use higher sulfur fuel if fitted with cleaning devices called scrubbers. 
A 100-foot unmanned research vessel is being built for a transatlantic crossing to mark the 400th anniversary of the pilgrim ship which took European settlers to America in 1620. It will be named the Mayflower, the same as the original wooden vessel, but is a much different three-hulled aluminium trimaran that is being built at present in Gdansk, Poland. It's planned to sail from Plymouth in the UK in September of next year to Plymouth in Massachusetts. The project is costing about a million pounds and is being supported by the City Council and Plymouth University in the UK and a wide range of businesses. The five-ton vessel will have sails and be solar and diesel powered for the crossing of 12 days, during which it will take water samples for research on ocean microplastics, water temperatures and nutrient levels. For navigation and collision avoidance, it will be equipped with an inertial guidance system and it will be insured. Controlling invasive species in ships' ballast water is being tackled by new regulations introduced by the International Maritime Organization. Ships take seawater into their tanks to ensure their stability, but this can contain aquatic species in microscopic or larval form, which can be invasive and harmful to local environments if the ballast water is released unmanaged in a new location. Finally, the Rubia Knud lighthouse on the northern Danish coast has been moved 70 metres inland on what has been described as like skates on rails. The 120-year-old 720-ton structure situated on the sand dunes of the island of North Jutland was moved to prevent it from toppling into the sea as a result of coastal erosion. Originally, the lighthouse stood 200 metres from the water, but the North Sea has eaten into the cliff on which the lighthouse stood, leaving it only a few metres from the edge. The local authority, funded by the Danish government, arranged for a local engineering firm to insert beams into the base of the lighthouse, which was then raised onto parallel rails and moved away from the sea. It's believed that this will give the lighthouse a 40-year reprieve. The Irish Sea is a very important place for breeding seabirds. Terns, gannets, guillemots, razorbills, kittiwakes. They face many threats. The fish they feed on and ecosystems, as well as the birds themselves, don't adhere to borders. All of which has been discussed by conservation groups on both sides of the Irish Sea. As Tara Adcock of Birdwatch Ireland reports. This October, representatives of Birdwatch Ireland, the National Parks and Wildlife Service, Louth Nature Trust and RSPB Northern Ireland attended the first Irish Sea Turn meeting in Bangor, Wales. The meeting brought together conservationists who work at breeding turn colonies on both sides of the Irish Sea to discuss methods used to protect these rare breeding seabirds and to share stories and experience that will benefit seabird conservation around the Irish Sea in years to come. Dr Stephen Newton from Birdwatch Ireland gave an update on how the many Irish turn colonies fared during summer 2019. Dublin's Rockabilly Island is the key site in Europe for rosia terns and also hosts large numbers of common terns. Numbers of both species dropped a little bit this year to 1,564 pairs of rosia terns and 1,833 pairs of common terns, likely the result of very low breeding success back in 2016. A similar drop in numbers was observed at Ladies Island Lake in Wexford, again a delayed result of the poor breeding success a couple of years ago. Overall this season was a successful one on Rockaville though, with the average number of chicks successfully fledged per pair having increased after several poor seasons. 
The Commentarians nesting in Dublin port also had a good year, with 645 nests recorded on the various structures in the port. Some of the nesting platforms suffered from predation by rats, peregrine falcons and likely other bird species too, but still a large number of chicks fled from the colony overall. The third Dublin tern colony on the islands off the coast of Dalkey was impacted by avian predation at one subcolony. By the end of the season, a minimum of 20 young had fledged from 29 nests, however, and this is the first year that Arctic terns successfully fledged from the publicly accessible main island. Conservation efforts on Dalkey this year have included rat eradication and the erection of bamboo canes on one island to deter predatory birds, and both methods appear to have paid dividends for the nesting terns. Kilcool Beach in County Wicklow hosts the largest little tern colony in Ireland. 162 pairs attempted to nest there this year, but a combination of high tides on the shingle beach and predation from hedgehogs and rooks impacted their success at various points in the season. By the end of the summer, 283 young had been fitted with metal rings and 141 were large enough to be given a special colour-coded leg ring, so the final number that fledged from the colony was encouraging. The colony at Portran, which had been so successful in 2018, was nearly wiped out by a fox over a couple of nights this season, though one determined pair managed to successfully fledge at least one chick with the help of the local community in North Dublin. The little turns at Baltray and Louth had their best year for a long time, with 50 chicks ringed despite predation incidents earlier in the summer. A few things were clear from the turn conference in Wales. One was that despite the differences between our turn colonies in terms of history, geography and numbers, the threats that nesting birds face are similar everywhere. With that in mind, everyone left the meeting with a newfound sense of the importance of communication and collaboration, and especially of sharing information on their experiences, successes and failures of different conservation methods attempted at different colonies. The second striking thing was the importance of the Irish Sea and surrounding coastlines for breeding seabirds. Not just terns, but gannets, guillemots, razorbills, kittiwakes and more. In the coming years, seabirds in the Irish Sea will face a number of threats, including climate change, overfishing and renewable energy developments that may impact the fish stocks that are so important to hundreds of thousands of seabirds. From here on, it will be important to assess these threats, not just from the point of view of birds or Ireland, but from a whole ecosystem perspective that acknowledges that birds, fish and ecosystems don't adhere to borders. To find out more about the Irish Sea Turn meeting held in Wales in October, visit www.rosiaturn.org. Now to the offices of Water Safety Ireland at the Long Walk on the banks of the River Corrib in Galway City. The organisation is focused on creating public awareness of water safety because an average of 127 people drown each year in Ireland, most of which tragedies it believes are avoidable. That's if attitudes and behaviour can be changed. John Leach is the organisation's chief executive. I recently attended the World Conference on Drowning Prevention in Durban, South Africa. 64 countries attended it, and the theme of the conference was the Zula word Ubuntu, which means humanity towards others, or the belief in a universal bond of sharing that connects all humanity. It was organised by the South African Life Saving Federation, and this conference takes place every two years. Did you know that every hour, every day, more than 40 people lose their lives to drowning? In total, 372,000 people drown each year, with those under five years at greatest risk. More than 90% of drownings occur in low- and middle-income countries, with the highest rates in the African, Southeast Asia and Western Pacific regions. Globally, over half of all drowning fatalities are among those aged under 25 years of age. 
The theme of the conference reflected the challenges of reducing the burden of drowning in all communities, nations and regions of the world, but particularly the African continent. This theme builds on the 2014 World Health Organization Global Report on Drowning by aligning with the key action items identified in the Implementation Guide to prevent drowning. One of the main uh, recommendations from this guide was to teach school-aged children basic swimming, water safety and safe rescue skills. With this in mind, I presented a paper on what we refer to in Ireland as Swim Weeks, which take place every summer on our island nation. This successful annual swimming and life-saving training programme at open water sites has been running since before the Second World War. At that time, there were very few heated swimming pools and only some outdoor pools and sea baths in Ireland. So rivers, lakes, slipways, harbours and beaches were used to teach children basic skills. They also learned how to be able to assist a person in distress in the water or who is at the early stages of drowning. In more recent years, they are trained to administer basic life support. This year alone, we had over 200 of these swim weeks run successfully. Some of the locations attract in excess of 300 children. There are a number of advantages to these swim weeks. The obvious one is the low cost. The other is that it helps the candidates develop their confidence in swimming in open water, where the vast majority of drownings occur. They also learn about all the various hazards and dangers, including rip currents, jellyfish stranding, coal shock, hypothermia, tides, quarries, rescue a ring boy, and much, much more. As a result, there was considerable interest in my presentation, as it can be adapted to many of the low to middle income countries on the continent of Africa. So until next month, enjoy your aquatic activities and always wear a life jacket on or near the water and use your influence to further reduce the number of drownings on our island nation. John Lynch, CEO of Irish Water Safety, and the annual Irish Sailing Cruising Conference has been set for Saturday the 15th of February at the National Yacht Club in Dunlera, County Dublin. Organiser Gail McAllister tells me that the theme will be exploration and discovery and there's more information on the website sailing.ie. And so we end this edition of This Island Nation, produced at CRY 104FM Yall on the East Cork coastline, with technical supervision by Justin Marr, and broadcast on community radio stations around Ireland, in Dublin on Near FM, Dublin City FM, Liffey Sound and Dublin South, on Dundalk FM, Athlone Community Radio, Connemara Community Radio and Kinvara FM Galway. Radio Corkabashkeen, Clare, Kilkenny City Radio, West Limerick 102 FM, Community Radio Castle Bar, Cork City Community Radio, West Cork FM and Community Radio Bear Island. Podcasts on iTunes, Mixcloud, Soundcloud, Spotify and the marinetimes.ie and on the National Council for the Blinds audio magazine. Wherever you've been listening, thank you for being part of the Maritime Community on Community Radio. You can contact the programme on email to thisislandnation at gmail.com or by phone or text to 0872 555197. That's email thisislandnation at gmail.com, phone or text 0872 555197. Until our next programme, from me, Tom McSweeney, the usual wish of fair sailing. <laughs>